week with Ben Ellis. This is Switch. A record number of COVID deaths across the country and locally, the number of cases in, for just one example, Castle Vale in Birmingham has risen fortnightly by 126%. Is the lockdown working? How much of it is down to the new variants? Are people just not following the rules? So many COVID questions as of late and we'll be putting them to the Director of Public Health for Birmingham, Dr Justin Varney, on the show. Joseph R. Biden is now the 46th President of the United States after being sworn in on Wednesday along with the history-making Kamala Harris as Vice President. How will Biden get on in unifying the country and what will become of his predecessor who faces his second impeachment trial this coming week? We'll be joined by Birmingham-based American journalist Jessica Noel Quinlan. And we've all heard the phrase short arms, deep pockets. Well, there's evidence to suggest that might not be such a negative trait and we should be encouraged to be more frugal. All this and more on The Week with me, Ben Ellis, right here from Switch Radio. The Week with Ben Ellis. This is Switch. Director of Public Health for Birmingham, Dr. Justin Varney, joins us on the line. Dr. Varney, hello. Good uh, morning, afternoon, evening. They're all blurring in COVID times. Whenever it is, uh, we're listening to this. We, we don't need to do a big introduction as to why we've got you on uh, on the line. Everybody knows, uh, of course, what's going on. But uh, the, the reason, uh, sort of in particular, that we've got you on the line uh, for the show this week is uh, something which was posted on the uh, Healthy Brum uh, Twitter account. That's the, mm-hmm. the Twitter account of um, Public Health for Birmingham and uh, there are many many interesting things in fact I think it's from a local point of view I think it's a very useful source of information uh, during the pandemic if mm. I may say so um, but uh, something that stood out to us bear in mind uh, here at Switch Radio our studios are in Castle Vale mm-hmm. is that Castle Vale uh, although I'm not in Castle Vale right now for obvious reasons I'm, I'm in I'm in my kitchen at home but um our studios are in Castlevale, and Castlevale tops the uh, league table, if we can put it in, in such a, a, a term, so for the rise in cases of COVID-19 uh, over a fortnightly period. I mean, the, the numbers are stark, and, and there are other uh, areas as well, but to, to just put these numbers into context for us. Yeah, so um, when we're looking at Castle Vale, um, I mean, we are seeing across the the city, different parts of the city go up um, and go down. Um, Castle Vale, um, in the week up to the 15th of January, which is the most recent complete week of data we've got, had a case rate of uh, just over 1,025 cases per 100,000. And that was about 100 cases over the last seven days, and that ranks sixth highest in the city. Um, now, that is a bit of a change for Castle Vale. It's an area that hasn't, uh, I think, been in the top 10 uh, across the city for some time. So that, that's been a bit of a shift. Um, and what we're seeing uh, in that part of the city, uh, and we're seeing a rise across, I think, the kind of Erdington constituency, that area that forms that band just to the bottom of Sutton Coalfield, um, is that that we have seen some uh, case rates rise over the last couple of um, uh, weeks. And we're seeing predominantly this is working age adults. um, And we're seeing it in um, all ethnicities, um, but in Castle Vale, I think particularly in our white community. Um, 
we're not seeing it linking back to any particular employer, um, which is interesting. And actually, I've just pulled up the, the breakdown of Castlevale in more detail. Um, it's 40 to 59 year olds is the highest case rate in Castlevale. Uh, and in that population, um, you know, the, the uh, case rate is about 1,589 cases per 100,000. So, um, you know, much higher again, followed by the 50 to 59 year old age group. Um, and as I say, not linked to any particular employer, which um, might surprise people because I, I know there are lots of people in the area that work for Jaguar Land Rover, um, but actually it's not linking back to, to them. Um, what we are seeing is a lot of household clusters. So over the last seven days, 35 household clusters. So that means households where more than two people uh, or two or more people have caught COVID. Um, the largest household clusters, only six people. So we're not talking mega households. Um, but it is an interesting picture. And, and what it's really suggesting is that people are catching it at work um, and bring it back into the household. Once it's in the house, it's spreading through the house. Um, so we're seeing that kind of expansion of the virus. Uh, and it's a reminder that no community in the city is immune. Yeah, um, of, of you know, course. This yeah. affects all of us. Um, and at the moment, we're definitely seeing those rises in Castlevale. And as part of our response to that, we've we've bought one of the mobile testing units. The the new lateral flow test has moved across to Castlevale Stadium this week, so that opened earlier in the week um, to help people get testing locally. Um, because actually, knowing you've got the virus is your first step to getting it under control. You you mentioned people are catching it at work in in the Castlevale area. Uh, there are a lot of schools as well. Uh, in in the Castlevale area, there's a, a, a big secondary school. There's little there's mm. lots of primary schools sort of dot, dotted about the place as well. Uh, and and schools have been doing everything that, that they can to um, remain as as COVID safe as possible since since practically since September really when mm. uh, children went went back to school uh, properly. And then although this this lockdown uh, came in, um. Have you factored that in as well as uh, people catching it at work? Yeah. So when I looked at the, so what I did was look specifically where the outbreaks are and, and trying to get a, a handle on what type of outbreaks there are. So have we got, um, so one of the first things I did actually was look at the schools in Castlevale and go, have we got a large number of outbreaks uh, linked to schools there? And the answer is no, we haven't actually. Um, we're not seeing that. Um what we're seeing in Castlevale is it is very much linked to household transmission and that linking back to some of the workplace transmission that's happening in other parts of the city and other parts of the region. Um, but we're not seeing clusters in the schools in Castlevale in the way that we are some of the other parts of the city. So it, it is something I looked at in detail, actually, to check. Um, you know, Castlevale numbers are not being driven by the schools. It's being very much driven by the adult population. Yeah. Number of cases per 100,000 people, 968, mm. and a difference from the previous fortnight of 126%. I mean, that uh, obviously very eye-catching figures. Amongst the other areas as well um, that were on, on the list, Stockland Green, 720 mm. cases, uh, Garrett's. I mean, these are these are not too far away from Castlevale mm. either. Uh, Stockland Green, Garrett's Green, sort of uh, Oscar, Suttonmere Green, Gravelly mm. Hill, Erdington as well. Uh, as you mentioned, um, apologies for the first part of this interview. I think the uh, the wire fell out of my <laughs> microphone. So uh, we'd be going off the webcam. Um, so uh, 
kind of improve um uh hopefully that's improved right now so uh, apologies for the, the sound issue uh, on my part there so you mentioned the testing center in castle vale mm. uh, at the castle vale uh, stadium and really an opportunity uh, justin just to to emphasize and we go back to the um the twitter of uh Public Health Birmingham, Healthy Brum, um, a, a pinned mm. tweet is uh, at the top there. And it's uh, a kind of a, a graphic illustration of what these lockdown rules are and how you should uh, really mm. be be following uh, the rules. So, um, I mean, that, that's that's very eye-catching as well. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the, the real challenge for all of us is the new variant is much more infectious and it's more infectious because when you catch it there's more of it in your body so every droplet that comes out of your mouth is like super loaded with virus and when the virus lands on your body it sticks to your cells tighter so it's much harder for our body to just brush them off Uh, and that's why it is more infectious and um, what we've seen with this lockdown is because it's more infectious it is even more important we stick to the rules and the absolutely most important rule that people need to stick to is if you have symptoms of COVID, high temperature, persistent cough, or loss of sense of smell or taste, any of those three, please ring 119 and get a test. But you must stay at home until you know the result of that test. And everyone you live with must stay at home. We know from the national research that the biggest problem we have at the moment is about a third of people, uh, if not more, who have symptoms just aren't staying at home. And every time they step out of that front door, they are spreading the virus in our communities. They're putting at risk people they care about, people they work with. So the really the most important thing at the moment is if you have symptoms or you're a contact of someone who does, you have to stay at home for those 10 days. There's financial help available. There's help available with the shopping. Please go on the council website and access that help. But please, please stay home because what we're seeing is that's not happening. And that's why the virus is continuing to spread. Nationally, we've seen record numbers uh, of daily deaths uh, increasing uh, throughout uh, the uh, the five working days of the week, shall we say. Um, just trying to put sort of a timeline in, in place here. It's always reported that the number of deaths are within 28 days of a positive COVID test. Now, that's important phraseology there, isn't it, Justin? Because that doesn't necessarily mean somebody has died of COVID, does it? I mean, they've tested positive and unfortunately, tragically, they've lost their lives, but it doesn't necessarily mean that COVID has taken their lives. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's really important. But the numbers are still uh, are still very high. Do we know? Because uh, I haven't seen it reported anywhere, and uh, maybe you can answer this. Maybe you can't. Do we know uh, the proportion of uh, the very high number of deaths, particularly this week? Do we know how responsible the new variant is in those deaths, or? Is this actually within 28 days? It's just a roundabout when the government were reporting that this new variant was here and they changed the Christmas from five days down to one. So if the new variant, uh, what I'm trying to say is it, 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 it's no, is it any or more or less deadly than it was before? Is it, we know it's more transmissible. So are we going to see those numbers continue to rise in the next week or two? Because then the 28 day period will be uh, from after the point where. Yeah the new variant was no 
if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Absolutely. So, um, so first of all, the important to say we report death in two different ways. So you're quite right. We re- the, the most up-to-date data, which is up to the 20th of January, um, is the number of deaths that have happened within 28 days of having positive tests. And that doesn't take account of if you died in a road traffic accident or you died from suicide or any other reason of death. Um, and so it's it's considered that that's likely to be a slight overestimate of the number of deaths. But over the last seven days, for Birmingham up to the 20th, it would be about 105 deaths of people within 28 days. Uh, and that would track back to uh, what was happening in the community about a month ago, which is when we were first seeing the rises uh, from the new variant. Now, the other way we look at death is from death certificates, and that's where someone's actually written on the death certificate, you've died from COVID. And the most recent data for that, it runs a bit later because of death certification processes, is 98 deaths in the the last week up to the 8th of January. So you can see there's actually not that much difference between the two numbers. Now, what we know about the new variant is that, obviously, it was in Kent and London, back before Christmas. And what we saw in Kent and London was the same proportion of people died as had died from the previous variant, from the the old variant. Um, So we're not expecting the proportion of people who die to change, but the new variants increase the number of people with COVID. And at the moment, what we're seeing is that rise, rapid rise after Christmas is already translating into over 100 to 150 people a day going into hospital. And we would expect that to appear in the death data somewhere over the next week or two. So we will start to see those death numbers go up over the next couple of weeks for Birmingham and for the West Midlands, because that reflects what happened just after Christmas when the new variant really started to get its teeth into us. uh, And we saw those rapid increase in case rates. Similarly, we won't expect to see the deaths really starting to come down for at least about another month. Um, We will start to see London's further ahead of us in terms of coming down the slope. They've been in restrictions, these tight restrictions since before Christmas, and that's just starting to really bring the rate in London down fast. We're running about two, three weeks behind them. So I wouldn't expect to see overall national deaths coming down probably until mid to late February at the very earliest. How are Birmingham's hospitals coping? I think the NHS is doing a phenomenal job. I mean, I think as listeners know, I trained as a GP originally before I came into public health. I'm married to a GP who works in the city. Uh, I meet on a regular basis with our with our hospital leaders. Um, every single trick in the book there is to keep the NHS going is has been pulled out um you people have been bought uh, in from other specialism so we've seen the hospitals redeploy doctors and nurses from our sexual health services onto frontline wards dealing with acutely unwell patients gps called in to help in the hospitals as well um so you know every every single trick in the book is being brought to play social care the council is pulling out every stop to help Uh, move people that are well enough out of hospital into care facilities safely and ensure that there's testing done 
uh, and the support for those care homes is is appropriate and in place and we're not seeing the problems we had last year uh, in terms of that then leading to outbreaks um, we're much much smarter we can do more testing now um, than we you know we know more about the virus now than we knew last year but the system is um, stretched to its absolute limit in um, every, you know I started training as a, as a doctor back in the 1990s I have never seen it as bad as it is now um, a couple of days ago over 40% of all of the hospital beds in the entire country had COVID patients in them that has never happened in history we have never had a disease that has taken 40% of all of the hospital beds. Um, everyone is doing their absolute best at the moment. We're pulling out every stop. Um, but unfortunately, I think we will still, we've still got a couple more days of the numbers may rise before they stabilise. And then it's going to take a few more weeks before we start to see that pressure easing off the NHS because the case rates have only just started to come down in the community and they're coming down very, very slowly. So that won't really improve things in the NHS for another couple of weeks. Is the Nightingale Hospital on standby? So the Nightingale Hospital's uh, always been on standby. Um, the problem, as we've discussed, I think, before, is that to open the, the Nightingale, you've got to take doctors and nurses from, from a hospital and put them into the Nightingale. And although you can change the ratios between how many patients to each nurse and how many patients to each doctor, and the Nightingale allows you to have more patients um, because it's a step-down facility. It's for, for patients that are getting better but not quite well enough to go home or, sadly, are on a palliative care track, so they're never going to get better and they're, they're going there to have somewhere that's a bit more peaceful and a bit more dignified to, to die. Um, but in order to do that, you've got to have doctors and nurses. And the problem at the moment for all of the Nightingales nationally is that there are just not doctors and nurses sitting twiddling their thumbs that could be put out you know be taken doing off doing what they're doing now to go and put them in the nightingale without that creating a kind of pack of card effect um and we may well get to the point where they open but i think uh, and around the country i think exeter has been opened but is the NHS is trying everything else first. They are the last resort. We've always said they would be the last resort um, for the NHS. And, and instead, what's happened is across the hospitals, um, people will know we talk about mothballing wards. Mm -hmm. So wards that are shut down. You know, they're the ones you always see on casualty where someone gets stuck in the basement in, in wards full of old furniture. Those kind of wards, all of those have been opened up. So um, I think the NHS has taken a very, very clever, very clever approach, actually, in saying rather than take patients and put them in the Nightingale, let's open up those those multiple wards. Let's open them up on a lower staffing ratio, because at least then if patients get sick, they are still in the hospital. And it's easier for us to get acute responses to them. Uh, and if they do deteriorate, we can then escalate them up much more quickly than physically having to ship them across the city to the NEC. So that's the current approach. It may not be enough. We'll see. But at the moment, it's holding. Um, uh, and I hope it will continue to hold. And, and we've got to all play our part in helping them. And that's about looking after ourselves, not doing stupid things that means we fall off ladders or have road track accidents. You know, we've got to play our part in taking 
the pressure off the NHS where we can. And that's really about accident avoidance, avoiding violence, not getting into fights with people. You know, all of those things are actually really important in helping the NHS get through this, as well as abiding by the COVID rules. Just on the, uh, the, the latest regarding the vaccine, um, we've seen reports uh, this week, and, and I'm not going to ask you as if you were a, a politician, because I've, I've seen enough. I've seen enough of those interviews on television this week, quite quite frankly, um, regarding that. But we, we've seen a, a general slowdown in the administering of of, of mm. the vaccine. Uh, where does the majority, or any, in fact, of the supply of the vaccine for Birmingham come from? So um, I'm not involved directly, actually, in the vaccine supply chain. Um, basically, it's coordinated nationally, and then it comes into uh, the hospital and to distribution hubs. So they're dotted around the country. Um, from those hubs, it goes to the primary care uh, sites as well. Um, and of course, to the mass vaccination sites like Millennium Point. So that's all controlled nationally. Um, and it's directly to the sites, rather than it coming into Birmingham and us being able to balance right, how much goes understood. to Millennium Point and how, how much goes to GPs. So we've seen reports this week about, uh, obviously, the uh, the flooding of the factory in, in Manchester mm. uh, because of Storm Christoph. There was, there was a fire in, at, a, at a vaccination factory in India. Um, I think there's been issues over, uh, I think there's a, a, a centre in Belgium who was supplying the mm. vaccine and I think Brexit's come into play, uh, potentially for, for all that, those kind of things. So, um, OK, you're not involved directly. Public health's not directly involved, but um, is there a message um, given th those stories that, that we've just mentioned? Is there a message you could give uh, to our sort of local audience about mm. um, how how quickly and effectively they will get their at least their first dose of the vaccine? So I would say the NHS is working flat out to get the vaccine into the arms of the people in the nine priority groups as quickly as possible. Um, even people like me who haven't treated, you know, I haven't treated a patient in 20 years. And on Monday, I go and do my vaccinator training mm -hmm. um, because I'm a qualified doctor. So I'm safe to be able to give an injection. Um, and I will do a couple of shifts a week to help um, in, in ensuring that the vaccine, as soon as we get it, can be put into the arms of people um, as quickly as we're possible. Um, what I would say is, uh, for those that have been lucky enough to receive an invitation to have the vaccine, please go and get it. If you're able to go to Millennium Point, please go. It's been set up to be safe. There's free parking available. Um, Uber, I think, at the moment are offering free rides for people um, who are entitled to vaccine to go as well to help. Um, you, um, If you're not able to get to Millennium Point, sit tight. You will get a letter from your GP. If you are housebound, the housebound vaccination service started this week across the city and is gradually working through the people that can't leave their homes to bring the vaccine to them um, based on their GP list of patients that are housebound. Um, but my core message is if you are offered this opportunity, please take it. We know that from the moment uh, from when you have the first jab within about two to week, two weeks time, it massively reduces your chances of dying if you catch COVID and it reduces your chances of ending up in hospital. If you are over 80, your chances of dying are over 300 times the rate of people who are in their 20s. If we can reduce, that's what getting the first jab is about. 
The second jab is the bit that stops you catching it. Um, and, and we hope will stop you also spreading it. But the first jab, and this is why the government's made the decision it has to get as many people the first jab as possible, is that it will stop you dying and it will stop you end up in hospital. So please take the first jab if you're offered it, take up that opportunity and make every effort to get to the, the vaccination site you've been offered. It's not perfect. We can't have them on every street corner. Uh, the NHS is doing its absolute best to make accessibility uh, as as geographically spread out as possible. But please play your part and take this up because it is about saving your life and reducing your risk of ending up in hospital. And finally, on the, the vaccine, is this uh, lifetime immunity or is it something you'll have to have every year, a bit like a flu jab? So um, I'll unpack that a little bit for you. So we think most vaccines where you have more than one jab it's the way i describe it, it's like doing your gcse's and your a levels so the first jab's gcse covid and it stops you ending up in hospital it stops you dying the second jab is a level covid and we think that at least for the next five or ten years you'll be pretty good at defending yourself now obviously no one's had this jab for five to ten years so we don't know how long it's going to last now, the difference with the flu jab is the reason you have a flu jab every year is not because your body forgets how to defend against flu. It's because the flu virus is a bit of a pain and it keeps changing its outside coat every year. So we need a new vaccine each year because it's a different version of the flu virus. Now, if COVID-19 becomes COVID-20 next year, then we're all going to need to be vaccinated right. again. Understood. Understood. So that's why the difference between an annual versus uh, something mm-hmm. protects for a longer time. Okay. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, at Healthy Brum on Twitter is where you can find all the information uh, that you could need. It's also available on uh, Facebook and uh, Instagram and uh, Birmingham.gov uk forward slash public health dr justin varney the director of public health for birmingham thank you very much indeed for joining us thank you for having me the week with ben ellis this is switch now the big story internationally of course is joe biden is officially the 46th president of the united states kamala harris is the first female vice president first black female vice president the first asian female vice president as well truly historic stuff and uh, we are uh, commemorating history being made this week we've been following the story all along since the election on november the 3rd uh, when uh, it, it literally kicked off uh, regarding the outcome and at the time we spoke with a, a journalist from america who studied in birmingham is living in coventry uh, right now and now that it is all done and dusted as far as the election is concerned we thought we'd get her back uh, on the show of course we're talking about jessica noel quinlan jessica hello hi how are you <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm good I, I do get a kick out of watching uh, history happen and uh, that is uh, the, the way it panned out of course in uh, washington so yeah. we spoke we spoke uh, on the show three or four days after the election when uh, Joe Biden was being declared uh, president-elect, and that is when uh, the uh, Donald Trump sort of conspiracy theories were being branded out of the place about um, election fraud, and they're going to take it to the Supreme Court. And, uh, well, to say nothing came of it would be incorrect, which, of course, we'll talk about uh, in just a moment. But uh, the, the transition finally happened and Joe Biden is in the White House. 
Yeah, it's it's honestly it was like a breath of fresh air when he was finally <laughs> sworn in as the 46th president. Um, it it was like finally we can just sit back and just let you know America be America now, you know, because it's just been too crazy. <laughs> so you've gone from make America great to make America America. Uh, and I think that's yeah, gen- <laughs> generally uh, generally the feeling is that that America did lose it, it, its identity uh, on the world stage uh, in the previous four years. Um, we, we're going to talk about um, obviously the things that led up to uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's uh, inauguration uh, this week. But since we last spoke, um, Donald Trump and uh, mainly Rudy Giuliani. Uh, just went on a completely not a uh, almost insane tirade of, of uh, claiming electoral fraud in uh, key key swing states. Uh, there was uh, Georgia, Pennsylvania, there was uh, Arizona and Michigan. They were they were the four uh, they were the four big states, and um, it, it didn't work. No, and I think it frustrated him so much to the point where he was, I mean, obviously he was doing a lot of kind of shady things to say. Uh, but when he made that phone call to Georgia, obviously that was like <laughs> the nail in the coffin, I think, for him well, is when he did that. Yeah, you know? I mean, it's interesting that, isn't it? Because uh, a couple of weeks ago we had um, a, a friend of ours on um, from Pennsylvania, who watched, obviously, uh, as we all did, in, in shock, what happened um, uh, on the Capitol building on the sixth of January, which, which we'll get onto uh, in just a moment. But that happened on the Wednesday of that week, and it's almost forgotten about that. It was only two days earlier that it was reported in the press that that Donald Trump was calling to put pressure on the Secretary of State of Georgia to find 11,700-odd missing votes that would have have given uh, the state to the Republicans and himself. And then he he, he could have put uh, more of a challenge in to to overturn uh, the outcome. There was was no fraud. It's it's been completely um, proven there was no fraud and uh, disproven that there was any kind of... uh, electoral fraud uh, as well. Uh, do we not just see, Jessica, that um, Donald Trump is, is the kind of guy who has just had, uh, even when things have gone badly, his whole life, everything, he's just ha- had it go his own way. And he, he's just one of those people who, who just will not accept uh, that he's been uh, defeated in any way, shape or form. And he, he will do whatever it takes to get to get what he wants. And uh, he's luck ran out. Yeah. I mean, you know, he said on record before that he doesn't like to lose, but, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of Americans' lives are at stake. Um, When Joe Biden got into office, you know, he quickly got in, started going over the coronavirus plan. Turns out the Trump administration really had no plan, which was There was no plan. Yeah, no plan at all. (laughs) It was very upsetting. Yeah. (laughs) But Joe Biden um, ha- has a plan because um, Barack Obama had a plan, and yeah. and Barack Obama, mm-hmm. um, when he was handing over to the Trump administration, did did take Trump officials into the White House to say, look, if anything bad, such as a pandemic happens, this is the way um, that the the United States proposes to deal with it, and. 
um, Trump Trump just dismissed it. Uh, and by the yeah, time and- by by the time that the, the, the pandemic came, none of the staff who uh, were given that tour of the White House to be shown by Barack Obama's team what mm-hmm. to do were working in the Trump administration anymore. He'd, he'd changed them all. He'd fired them all or they'd left or they'd been arrested <laughs> or they're in jail. And it's well, this is so one of the first things, as, as you rightly say, Joe Biden gets into um, uh, the White House. He signs uh, 17 executive orders mm-hmm. primarily on uh, tackling covid um, the United States has um, the, the worst uh, death toll in the world um, mm-hmm. because, I mean, Britain has a plan and, and, and our death toll is pretty horrific. I mean, Im- imagine, imagine, yeah. imagine what, 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 what could be the case if, if a, a major world power doesn't have uh, a, a plan to protect its citizens. And, and that's, that's kind of what we've seen. Um, but there are yeah. also things, uh, climate change as well, um, getting yeah. back into the, the, the Paris Agreement, uh, mm-hmm. with Donald Trump getting I mean another thing with COVID as well getting um, the United States back in with the wealth the World Health Organization yeah, I mean, how, how how can anybody um, in a, a, a Western democracy um, pull the country out of the World Health Organization at a time that there's a pandemic that just that just seems like utter madness to me it's honestly yeah I mean it's disgusting because he's only a has one focus one you know thing in mind and it's all about you know the business plan but obviously there's more to being a president like there's the social aspect you know taking care of your people like all this other stuff which he was totally neglecting and you know and he was so focused on staying in power and um it was (laughs) it was just disturbing but yeah i mean it was very exciting when i when i knew that well, I, I knew for sure Biden was going to, you know, rejoin the Paris Agreement and the World Health Organization. Um, so, you know, it, it's those are two very important issues that we have to keep in mind. You're like, these are like our future, you know, for our children. Like, these are the type of things we have to consider. Like, if we don't, like, you know, our future yeah. children won't, won't have, you know, a yeah. nice, beautiful land, you know? I mean, it's just that's the facts. <laughs> and that's the yeah. thing I like about Biden's administration is they're basing everything on science and following the science of how things are working. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. it's, the facts don't lie. So no, they don't. And they brought um, Dr. Anthony Fauci back into the, the fold, haven't they? Who was uh, mm-hmm. pretty much discarded by uh, uh, the, the previous administration as well. So, um, you, you know, it, we, we have it here in this country with um uh, Patrick Valance and Chris, and Chris Whitty are always at the side of uh, of Boris Johnson and tackling the tough questions and, and following the science when it comes to the pandemic. But um, for the last three, four, five months or so, uh, America didn't have that. No, not at all. <laughs> uh, like uh, Trump had totally one hundred percent checked out of the coronavirus um, pandemic. He just, like I said, he had only one focus was to try and figure out how to stay in power and. Obviously, he all these conspiracy theories were, you know, brought up and obviously what led to the insurrection of the Capitol. And that's a whole other thing in itself. We'll, but yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll come to that for yeah. sure. Uh, okay. I think a, a, a word on um, Kamala Harris. And, and I mean, that I mean, that truly is historic, isn't it? Um, yeah. First female 
vice president, as we said first, uh, shall we say, um, BAME um, vice president um, to um, yeah. take up office. I mean, that that as we said, that that is historic. Yeah, I mean, she she's just such a she has such a powerful voice and the fact that she just commands around the way she does. And it's just inspiring um, to see someone like that, you know, and obviously she's the first vice president. So, you know, of America. So it's just it is inspiring. And I've heard <laughs> unfortunately, I've heard some people say just because she's a female, I don't have to support her. And that's a female saying that and I'm like, well, how can you say something like that? Like, <laughs> this is this is something we have been like, you know, trying to get to. Like, mm -hmm. there's so much inequality in the workplace in general. Like, um, when it comes to you know the gender, anyways, you know, gender mm -hmm. equality. Um, you know, and so it is inspiring to finally see a woman in that kind of position. You know, mm -hmm. so you yeah. know. Um, even when the poet was, you know, um, oh, that was poem, good. Yeah, that was excellent. That was just, uh, and then when she included, like, the fact that there was a, you know, female, you know, vice president in power, you know, like it was just, uh, just so, just uplifting. The whole thing. <laughs> yeah, and this talk as well that, um, given uh, that Joe Biden is, is the oldest. Um, uh, president in history that it could only serve one term just due to his age and and, he, and his health. So uh, it could be Kamala 2024. It could be, or, you know, never know. He could maybe want to try and do it one more time. But because uh, I heard um, that he's already thinking about a second term. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. So we'll see. But honestly, I would be happy with either one um, because they're both good people and they have America's best interests at heart. For sure. <laughs> so uh, going back to the previous uh, administration, because that, that story uh, is not over and uh, I think it will, will play out uh, this week uh, coming. Um, the uh, Because the, the important thing is as well, for those who don't know uh, how uh, American politics works, you have three um, key bodies of power in America, you have the White House, you have um, the House of Representatives, and you have the Senate. And uh, following uh, all of the elections that have happened, including the, the Georgia runoff, um, the Democrats now have control of all three for at least the next two years. And that uh, is going to make, um, from uh, uh, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's point of view, uh, it's going to make it a lot easier to uh, for her to get her way. And um, convict Donald Trump in the second impeachment, which is going to come this week. Yeah, I mean, it is, I think it's a good thing, um, personally, because I think he needs to kind of take ownership because he hasn't so far yet taken ownership of what he did. Um, and it was pretty horrific. Everybody from, you know, over here in the UK was just like, asking me questions like, oh my gosh, this is just crazy. And uh, you know, it's just, I mean, it's just, I don't, I don't know. It, it, I was just really upset the whole time. I, I was glued to the TV, obviously, yeah. um, watching every step, you know, and just, and even like from a reporter's perspective, you know, a journalist's perspective, watching the reporters out there, you know, I felt like just anxious, just watching them in the scenes, mm -hmm. like, you know, it's like, 
they were in this war zone, but they were in America. You know? yeah. it, especially as, as well, it, from, a, from a news point of view, uh, as I say, where we come from, uh, where you're supposed to be objective uh, about uh, what's happening uh, in front of you. It, when it's, it's kind of so obvious that this is what's going on here, um, <laughs> you, you do have to kind of, uh, all right, we're supposed to be objective here. We're, we're, we're supposed to say, um, we're supposed to use words like alleged and um, it's been reported that, but it was obvious what was going on. Uh, you know, he, yeah. he, hold, he, he holds a rally uh, in the morning to say, we're, we're, on, on the morning that the electoral votes were being counted and ratified by uh, his, his own vice president, Mike Pence, mm -hmm. that um, he's going to hold a rally and say, um, we, we he can say all he likes. He wanted it to be peaceful, but he knew it. He knew it wouldn't be. Uh, he, he knows what his um, he knows what his supporter base is. It, it, this, this is the thing about Donald Trump, Jessica. And I, I'd like to get your your, your opinions on this. Um, I, I don't have any sympathy with the Republican Party um, by any any stretch of the imagination, but sometimes I feel a bit sorry for uh, Republicans. Uh, and and some some Republican voters in that Donald Trump used the Republican Party as his vehicle to kind of get what he wants. I don't think he's he's a Republican, Donald Trump. I think he was he was he was almost because he's only in, in it for himself. He was almost an independent candidate who uh, rounded up rounded up sections of American society. So um, uh, say the, the gun lovers of the NRA and um, the, the deeply sort of uh, religious Christians in the South and uh, other areas of society. And he, and he pulls all, all them together and, and he can, um, and, and, and they will kind of listen to him. But the, the, the one thing that all those um, areas of American society had in common is that they generally vote Republican. So, yeah. so it, 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 he's not, he, he wasn't doing this uh, for the Republicans or he wasn't doing it for them. He just gathered around the people that he could convince to vote for him uh, under the banner of the Republican yeah. Party. And it, it, in many ways, potentially the real villains of, of the piece are, are <laughs> the established Republicans in your kind of Ted Cruz's and your Mitch McConnell's and uh, Lindsey Graham uh, uh, as well, um, who 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 depended on Donald Trump's votes um, to keep themselves in power uh, in, in their their kind of Senate seats, but but they wouldn't see reality either, and they wouldn't budge. If anything, if anything, they're they're just as culpable for the enabling of the the Donald exactly. Trump movement, aren't they? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people, um, especially where I'm from, a lot of people always vote Republican and, you know, um, <laughs> you know, I'm just like, do you not see what this guy, this man is doing? Like, I mean, I feel like there's so many people that have forgotten in the beginning when he had that video come out, when he was on that bus talking about doing things to women, like, it was very disturbing and it, <laughs> and so it's, so it's like, just because he's a Republican, even though he's really Trump, let's just call him, he's a Trump, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> um, he's, he, he's a self, he's his own little self. He, you can call him independent or whatever, but, 
Um, I don't know. And so, yeah, but anyways, um, yeah, in terms of like the Republicans who were supporting his theories about voting fraud and stuff like that, that they, they are just as responsible and they should also be held accountable for what happened with yeah. the insurrection for sure. A hundred, one hundred percent. Yeah, because with all due respect to them, actually no respect at all, because they <laughs> uh, they they tried to uh, they tried to overthrow uh, one of the great democracies of the world. Yeah. But but um, y- you know they're the, the kind of people who believe things like QAnon and stuff like that. I mean, which is just some yeah. of the most ludicrous stuff that you'll find uh, on the internet the, the world over. Which I'm not even going to give them the publicity of saying what what they. They think. I mean, there, there were. Uh, the only thing I will say is that there were people who, who were part of the the QAnon uh, sort of movement who were sitting down to watch the inauguration, saying, "Right, everything that we believed was going to happen today is going to happen," and then it didn't happen, and they were like, "Oh, maybe it wasn't true." Do you yeah. think? Do you think yeah, it wasn't true? Exactly. <laughs> this is. These are the people. These are the people that that Donald Trump rounded up to vote for him. You yeah, know, the, exactly. it, it, it's it when it's so obvious. So um, it, people would say, OK, impeachment for Donald Trump. He's already left office. What's the point in in, in impeaching him? Uh, I think it's important as a, a successful impeachment if it was to be um, looked at that way from um, particularly Nancy Pelosi's point of view. Um, it, it would bar him from um, uh, running for public office again. So it, you, you wouldn't get Trump 2024. Yeah, if, if it was successful. Yeah, I mean, I more than anything, I think it needs to happen because he needs to be held accountable for what he did. Because, I mean, I still feel like I I'll, I won't ever forget what I saw on that television, watching what I saw. Um, but not only that, people died. They did. <laughs> One was a police officer. Like, mm-hmm. yes, he definitely needs to be held accountable. Um, but no, he should not be a person who holds that type of position. He has no business holding that type of position. He doesn't know how to handle exactly what it is to be president. Um, so yeah, no, he has absolutely just, he, he just doesn't have any position being in that position. Uh, so yeah. (laughs) Well, I think that's, uh, that's a very good point at which to, uh, to kind of leave it there, and um, uh, I- I'm happy that you're happy now. Put it that put it that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even looking at even looking at things from afar. Um, yeah. Jessica Noel Jessica Noel Quinlan, uh, journalist uh, who trained in Birmingham, lives in Coventry right now, um, but it's uh, American uh, born and bred. Uh, thanks for once again joining us on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thank, thank you. The week with Ben Ellis. This is Switch. Now, after a tough year in 2020, Brits are embracing tightening up their purse strings with 46% of those who experience financial uncertainty trying to be more frugal going forward. As a result of last year, 26% of also started to save or put money aside, with 22% using credit cards uh, less than before. 42% are trying to spend less on disposable income uh, each month. Now, a positive outcome of 2020, the new research reveals that despite the challenges faced by the pandemic, which has left Brits confident about their finances and feelings for uh, the year to come. 
So it's uh, statistics from Equifax. They're showing that uh, many of us have struggled last year with over two in five saying 2020 brought out a great uh, financial uncertainty. And there's so much more uh, to talk about this. Uh, We're going to be discussing this right now about this new research and provide tips on being financially happy and confident. It is Claire Seal, author of Real Life Money and Frugality Champion. Uh, she's joined by uh, Lisa Hardstaff, Head of Customer Experience at Equifax. Hello to you both. Hello. Hi. Hello there. So uh, 2021, uh, a change in attitude uh, to uh, spending our money. If uh, anybody's watching the video of this right now, I've, I've got a Zoom background with a, a man with short arms and deep pockets. That's the the, the saying that, that that goes with it. I mean, but um, uh, obviously generated a bit of a laugh there, but it... it it's nice to be able to put a a positive spin on that. Uh, Claire, first of all. Yeah, I think that it's really encouraging the stats that Equifax um, have come through from this study with. Um, The fact that 82% of people are, you know, aiming to change the way that they manage money, I think is fantastic. I think it shows that, you know, despite the fact that 2020 was very financially uncertain year that's helped people to maybe engage with their finances a bit more and I think that you know the key thing then is for people to capitalize on those on that mindset change and actually turn that into new um, kind of better habits. Uh, Lisa do you find uh, the outcome of the research surprising in a way that being in lockdown for so long uh, and the fact that we went into Christmas and now we're in a new lockdown in 2021 uh, a lot of people with their sort of smart devices I mean uh, the the urge is there to spend isn't it so so the fact that um, many people have seemed to have resisted that temptation is that surprising to you? Um Not as much as perhaps you'd think, because we did some research last year and um, it showed that, you know, some people are are actively, now they're not commuting to work. Um, Often if they've got young children in childcare, they're at home, so they're not paying for that. But they're actually finding that they have got, you know, some extra money that they can put aside and be careful with. Um, They're not buying coffees to and from work if, if they use public transport, petrol, um, and also lunches. So there can be savings to be made for those that are lucky enough to be able to work from home and are still employed. Um, but the research showed that 70% of 18 to 34-year-olds, um, you know, that had un- uh, been sort of uh, concerned because they've been furloughed or, or even made re- uh, redundant, um, they are still being impacted. And certainly for those people 2021 is something they're going to have to really focus on their finances to try and help them get get themselves back on track. And from the point of view of uh, Equifax, I mean, if if we have the stat that over a quarter uh, of Brits use credit less than they did in 2019, is there not a danger that there could be a negative impact on, on people's credit scores because um, the the only spending that you're doing is effectively paying off the bill that you had before rather than um, taking out new, new credit? Um, what lenders want to see is that you have managed your credit historically well. So uh, what companies like Equifax credit reference agencies do is they allow um, consumers to go and see their credit reports Um, and they can see some of the information that lenders will use when they make credit decisions. So um, credit is not a bad thing, and it's a good thing to have a pattern of history where you show that you've had credit, you've managed it well, 
and you are paying it off. So it is better to have some credit that you are being good about making the repayments on because that will show lenders that you are a good and a reliable person to lend money to. Yeah, I think actually that's, that's a good point. We should probably put it out there for those who, who, who may not be aware. Um, there, there's some people that get caught out, aren't there, by saying, well, I don't have any debts and I've never really had any debts, but I have an extremely low credit score and can't figure out why that is. It's because there's there's been no history of, of, of yeah. borrowing and paying back, is there? That, and that's that's where the credit score comes from. Yeah. And, you know, that's what lenders want to see. If they don't know whether you have got a history of being able to pay back money that you have been lent, then, you know, that they will have some concerns about, will you be able to pay this back? So, you, you know, your credit report is not your wealth statement. It is how you have managed your credit over the last six years. Uh, understood. And uh, I realise we're short on time here, but uh, Claire, I've ne- never met a frugality champion before. <laughs> Um, which, which is uh, is this something that's sort of uh, developed over time or are you is it just your your natural way oh no it's not my natural way at all uh, until a couple of years ago I had a really difficult relationship with money and with spending and um you know I, I was really forced to readdress my um financial situation a couple of years ago um and really I think uh, what I've been doing since then is talking about how to turn that around and how to embrace frugality a bit more because actually it's not a one-size-fits-all thing um it means slightly different things to different people and you know it, it's it's more about deciding what's important to you and what you value and not overspending on things that you know are, are not going to add any value to your life and just finally, before we let you go, uh, is this something that, that can be taken forward, uh, uh, frugality as a trait, or is it because we don't know how long this, obviously, this pandemic is going to last? I mean, is this something that we can uh, take forward and become natural part of our lives, or is it something that we just need to bear in mind because we're in a pandemic? I think it's something where, you know, obviously some people are going to have to have cut right back during the pandemic and that's not something that they want to continue forever. But for a lot of people, I think the new habits that we're building, like spending more mindfully and engaging a bit more with our finances are absolutely something that we should take forward. Claire Seal, author of Real Life Money and Frugality Champion, you could find uh, on Instagram and Twitter at My Frugal Year. Uh, also joined by uh, Lisa Hartstaff, the head of uh, customer experience at Equifax. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on the show. Thanks. Thank you for having me. Bye. The week with Ben Ellis. This is Switch. We'd like to thank you very much for taking the time to download our podcast where you normally get your podcast from. Why not subscribe and you'll get a nice notification of when the next episode of the week will be available to you. Usually around about Monday lunchtime, UK time is when you can find us. Of course, you could listen to us on the radio, of course, between 12 and 2 every Sunday across Birmingham on Switch Radio. And you can find out more about the show by going to our website, switchradio.co.uk. Thanks to all of our guests who joined me on the show. Thank you to Lisa Hardstaff, Head of Customer Experience at Equifax, and also to uh, the frugality champion, uh, Claire Seal, the author of Real Life Money. Frugality is something that should be embraced and enjoyed, not something that should be shunned. So that's something to think about, definitely, 
going forward to Jessica Noel Quinlan, who joined us on the show, an American journalist who is based in the Midlands here in the UK, but she gave us her thoughts on the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in the States this week. And to the big guest of the show, really, uh, with COVID out of control, the Director of Public Health for Birmingham, Dr. Justin Varney, joined us on the show, answered our questions regarding uh, COVID-19, and we do appreciate him very much indeed taking the time to join us on the show. From me, Ben Ellis, and all of the team, stay safe, look after each other, and we'll talk to you next week. The Week with Ben Ellis. This is Switch.